you want to create the pitch for your audience. Um, and you can think of pitching to an investor much like um, a sales process. You know, you want to understand you want to understand the customers in your funnel. You want to segment them accordingly, and you want to do as much research as you can to learn about their backgrounds and their interests, and basically ways you can connect with them. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Well, hello folks, Garrett here. Welcome back to the most awesome founder podcast. Um, we are back for round two of a new format that we're uh, playing with these days that we're calling the Most Awesome Founder Inspiration Sessions. Uh, returning uh, for the second episode of this kind is my esteemed colleague and friend, Professor Dries Fomms. And we are following the same kind of model as we did before, which is exploring something that we learned something that made us think, and something that made us laugh. Like the last time, we're each bringing in one topic um, from each one of these categories and discussing it from our unique perspectives. Professor Foms as a, uh, a professor of entrepreneurship and innovation, and myself with uh, 20 plus years in the trenches being an entrepreneur. So hopefully we can uh, we can have some lively debate on these interesting and relevant uh, and time-sensitive subjects, and maybe we can incite some dialogue and you can learn something from it. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany, this is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Welcome, Dries, back for another episode. Hi. Yeah, man. Um, I really enjoyed doing this last time with you. It was uh, it was super fun. You brought some really interesting topics to light and made me think of some things that I thought I knew a lot about um, in a completely different way. Um, I think particularly when you shared the the research on accelerators that, you know, you said that that made you think. It made me think for the weeks, <laughs> weeks after that, as I've been actively involved in a number of accelerators, really kind of looking at through that through that lens and, and seeing things in a different way. So I am excited for what you bring to the table this week. Okay, great. And actually, I brought again uh, two academic papers with me. So hopefully I can inspire you again a bit. And challenge me, I think. <laughs> That's even more uh, ambitious. Uh, and so let me immediately start with the first item. Uh, so something that made me learn. And I brought with me a paper that was published in 2019 in the Journal of Management Studies. It was authored by Thibaut van Balen, Murat Tarakshi and Asish Soots. And the title is, Do Disruptive Visions Pay Off? The Impact of Disruptive Entrepreneurial Visions on Venture Funding. 
and we will go deeper into the actual content uh, immediately. But so this is actually a paper that looks how how entrepreneurs can use impression management to influence the likelihood of getting funding. So can you actually, when you pitch to investors, use impress, impression management to increase the likelihood that you get funding? Now, again, maybe as a starting point, you as a practitioner, uh, you have pitched quite some time in front of investors. What kind of impression techniques did you apply? I, 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 maybe you can just clarify. To me, that's a, a, a big word that I'm not, I think I understand, but what do you mean by impression management? It's, do you want, did you try to twitch in one way your pitch to make it more attractive? Mm, right, right. Um, in that case, that's a very, very interesting topic. And I think it's one that I talk about with founders mm. quite a bit. Um, because no, no two pitch decks and no two presentations should be the same. And I was sharing this with one of my founder teams a few weeks ago. Um, they were asking for an example of one of the, the pitches I did for one of my, my venture-backed startups. And I went through a folder and I found 70 or 80 versions of this pitch deck. And I, I did this kind of intuitively, but over the years and the decades since, I learned that it's actually perhaps a best practice, which is you want to create the pitch for your audience. No. Um, and you can think of pitching to an investor much like um, a sales process. Mm. You know, you want to understand you want to understand the customers in your funnel. You want to segment them accordingly, and you want to do as much research as you can to learn about their backgrounds and their interests, and basically ways you can connect with them. Right. So we we would go really deep. You know, of course we would look at their fund look at their team, look at their portfolio ventures. We'd want to know their ticket size, what types of investments are they doing debt? Are they doing equity, later stage, earlier stage? You know, are they going to, do they have a propensity to write a check for 200K or for a million? And what sectors are they most interested in? But then we go deeper too. You know, we would try to comb their LinkedIn's, understand maybe where they made their money or what their previous work was like, what types of ventures they built. We'd even be digging into Facebook and Instagram. Do they have kids? Do they like to travel? Anything that we could learn about that audience that we could find a connection point with them. And that could be used through through the way we presented it, the value proposition, maybe some humor or some uh, initial you know, even prior to the pitch, finding ways to connect because I think, and I know I'm rambling and this is your topic, but I think it's, it's so important that we, we think of investors not as a checkbook, but we think of them as humans and you want to connect with those humans. Great. So you're actually saying that there should be kind of pitch investor fit. It's a new kind of fit uh, <laughs> that we have to emphasize, not yet. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's, um, it is the, the craft of a storyteller yeah. and great storytellers frame their story for the audience to connect okay. with that audience. And so uh, framing, I think is here an important word. And, and in this particular paper that I brought along, the question is, should you frame your venture in a disruptive way or not? Meaning, should you emphasize when you pitch to investors that your venture is really fundamentally changing the state of the art in the industry or should you actually 
not emphasize that too much and put it in a more conservative way. Mm. What would you do? And again, now, I, I think you made a very good point saying, yeah, it depends on the investor, but let's say on average, would you, would you go for the disruptive road or the more conservative road? Well, first of all, I would never use the word disruptive because okay. I absolutely detest that word. <laughs> it's one of those overused words yeah. like sustainability that don't actually mean anything, yeah. you know? Um, so I try to stay away from those things altogether. Okay. Um, I don't believe in my experience and my knowledge of other investors that that is one of the top metrics they look for. Um, they Investors tend to care, if they're early stage particularly, they tend to care most about team, and then they care about market size, and then they care about you know traction and growth and, and things like that. Disruption, um, in I think the context in which you're using it, um, has strong correlations with risk. The more disruptive something is, the, the higher the risk profile. And the harder it is to sell into a market that may not, may not fully understand it if it is indeed as different and unique. Yeah. And, and here you already touched upon a very important point. So what the authors do is, is they think about, okay, if as an entrepreneur, if you really bring forward a dis what they call a disruptive vision, so in your pitch, in your presentation, you really emphasize that your venture is changing the existing state of the art, is that increasing the likelihood of getting funding or decreasing. And what they argue is it will actually increase the likelihood of funding because to investors, it will signal the opportunity for extraordinary returns. At the same time, they argue, okay, if you bring forward a disruptive vision, it brings along a level of uncertainty that will actually decrease the ticket size of the investments that you will receive. Hmm. So they see kind of two opposite effects uh, going on that are linked to promoting your venture in a disruptive way. Hmm. So that are the hypotheses. On the one hand, they hypothesize promoting a disruptive vision will increase the likelihood that you get funding, but promoting a disruptive vision will at the same time decrease the ticket size. Wow. I did not expect you to say that. Um, Go ahead. To me, that is at least this is the first time I'm hearing this. I have not read that paper. Um, to me, that's counterintuitive. Okay. Um, generally, the more, ugh, I hate to say it, the more disruptive something is, um, the more unique it is and innovative it is. Um, the more resources it tends to take to inform and educate the market. Yeah. You know, we had a venture that was like that, and we talked about it a lot, that um, before we could convert a customer, we had, to, we had to educate them, right? So, and that meant slower sales cycles, larger marketing budgets, more thought leadership, and we required more runway because yeah. it was just slower. Yeah. Now, when you think of disruptive technology, um, you know, especially stuff arising from R&D, those are also, you know, longer cycles and slower, slower developments. So that seems like if they're inclined to invest, but they're inclined only to do it on a smaller ticket size, then you're either spending more time finding more investors and trying to syndicate them mm -hmm. or 
you're going to be running out of runway before you get proof of concept on something that could actually be game changing. No, you know, I see your points, but let, let me talk about the data, what they yeah, actually found. Yeah. So they, they tested these hypotheses on a database of 4,000 startups in Israel. And the nice thing of database was that they both have startups that raised money, but also startups that didn't raise money. So they could really compare. And actually, they found confirmation for their hypothesis. And the results were, were quite significant. So um, a standard deviation increase in disruptive vision led to a 22% increase of the likelihood to get funding. But at the same time, the same standard deviation increase in disruptive vision led to a decrease in the amount of received funding by 24%. Hmm. So higher likelihood to get money, lower size of funding. And here, the interesting thing comes, they didn't stop there. What they did was they said, ah, it's a database and there might be biases, blah, blah, blah. So they said, okay, let's try to replicate our findings by doing a natural experiment. So they collected a bunch of investors and they said, look, you're, uh, you have to think that you're having an investment fund of that much amount. And here is one potential startup. Here is the, the vision statement of the startup. And so you have to decide whether you would invest and how much money. And of course, here they could nicely, as an experiment, uh, randomly give some people the same startup, but a very disruptive vision, and others the same startup characteristics, but a less disruptive vision. So really like an experiment, which you would do with drug testing, they did it here to see if their results would hold. And actually, they, would, they were able to really replicate their results. So again, they found if a disrupted vision is formulated, people are more likely to invest, but the size they want to invest is lower. So they were actually fully able to replicate the findings. And that, that really made me learn like, okay, you, you, you do not only have to rely on these databases, but you can actually replicate Interesting findings, I think, with this kind of experimental designs to really give convincing evidence. Although, uh, to some extent, it might feel counterintuitive that if you present a more disrupted vision towards investors, that actually the money they invest is lower, which I, I see your point, uh, that you would actually think sometimes the opposite. So it's interesting that they, the way they replicated it, mm. because the first thing that came to mind was this like reflexivity bias yep. that would come out of the come out of the database right because how do you defining something as disruptive would you know in a lot of ways is subjective of course but it's a lot easier to define something as disruptive once you know the trajectory that they're on right so if you're looking at something retroactively yep you're then defining it as disruptive retroactively. And that means it's probably had some probability of success, which means it likely yeah. raised some funding. Where, where the data goes wonky to me is if it, was, if it was a big success and it raised some funding, but it only raised, a, it raised less funding than market norms, then that I'm, I would be fascinated. I would love someone to go back in and tell me how they compensated for yeah. That that reduced amount of capital. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm always interested in papers when when the authors kind of say, "Hey, you know, here are some other gaps, or here's future research that could come out of this." I feel like that's a study that is. I don't know if it says much, but it's thought provoking, and yeah. it it to me it provides more questions than it does answers. 
And I think what you said at the beginning is a very valid point. I think what kind of vision you want to present towards investors depends on the investor. Right. Yeah, so maybe for some types of investors, presenting it more in a disruptive way or whatever you want to call that uh, might make sense. Whereas maybe other investors, it might be better to do it in a bit more conservative way. So I think if you talk about future research, taking into account the perspective of the investor, what kind of investor do you have and what is actually the best impression management for that investor, I think that would be really interesting as a next step. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a really great paper, really thought-provoking. Um, it's actually, I think, will play into nicely when we talk about something that made me think. I think okay. it will, it will kind of <laughs> tie into that as well. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share something that uh, that I learned recently that really, really uh, sparked my interest. And I think I've told you this offline, Dries, but I like listening to podcasts while I'm working out at the gym. And this episode was so captivating to me and connected so many dots that I, I literally stopped and I took notes on my phone for about 40 minutes okay. just trying to put the pieces together on it. And I think one of the reasons I did that is because it is uh, very timely and and, uh, and relative topic that we're all quite familiar with right now, and it ties very much into the into the war in Ukraine. Um, but this uh, this came from the All In podcast. Um, if you haven't heard of the All In podcast, it's hosted by you know some of the world's top Silicon Valley investors. So that's, uh, you know, Chamath uh, Palapataya, we say his name wrong. He's ex-Facebook. He built uh, a couple impact funds. He has a hugely successful family office. Uh, billionaire, one of the investors in the golden owners of the Golden State Warriors basketball team. Uh, Jason Kalikanakis, I believe 500 startups was he was a part of. Many big angel investments, big family office. Uh, David Sachs of Craft Ventures and David Friedberg, who's part of the production board. Um, he's been kind of climate and environmental investor and kind of life sciences investor. So these guys come together and kind of just riff on a bunch of different topics. And it's four really, really smart people talking about interesting things, basically. So the, the topic of this episode 72 was uh, titled Impact of Sanctions, Deglobalization, Food Shortage Risks, macroeconomic outlooks and more <laughs> that's a quite ambitious uh, topic <laughs> yeah right and you would normally see that and be like how are they going to cover this but the way the dots were connected on this thing were were absolutely incredible and essentially what they talked about was how the this war in ukraine is almost certain to lead to massive famine and hunger for over a billion people in the world. And, uh, you know, you might think, okay, this is a regional war. Yes, it's on our doorstep. Um, it's very important uh, issue, but how is that going to lead to hunger all over the world? Um, furthermore, what they talked about, what they argue is that if it wasn't for Europe and the Western world's history of pandering to populist environmental movements, um, NATO would likely be in a stronger position to push back against this Russian aggression. 
Now, I know that is a very controversial topic. It even sounds controversial for me as in someone who, you know, sees himself as a as a pretty green environmentalist. But when they put the pieces together, it, it became really quite compelling. So let me tell you how. Yes, the, the, for me, the dots are not yet clear or how they get connected. So um, we'll start with, with this. Um, 15% of the world's ingested cal caloric intake. That means 15% of every human's caloric intake on the planet comes from wheat. One third of that wheat is produced in Russia and Ukraine. So essentially 5% of the caloric intake in the world is produced in Russia and Ukraine. Um, planting season is March, April. So um, Ukraine has essentially missed the planting season. And as a result of economic sanctions, Russia has closed all exports of wheat. It gets more complicated than that. Um, fertilizer is required to produce agriculture at a very large scale. And fertilizer comes from three primary ingredients, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Particularly, those ingredients, in order to make fertilizer, require natural gas, which also Russia has uh, a huge impact on the production of in the world, which they also have the ability to flip the switch and turn off. So we have seen uh, a 3x increase in prices of nitrogen fertilizers, a 5x increase in prices of phosphorus fertilizers, and um, something like 3x in potassium as well. So essentially the cost of, of food and wheat and other foods has gone up incredibly. Um, there are about 800 million people on the planet that live off less than 1,200 calories a day. Most of them are in the global south, you know, Africa, parts of Asia, Latin America. Um, and any, any massive increase in wheat production, now you might think, okay, there's going to be, or a massive increase in wheat prices, you might think, okay, well, that'll get distributed across the world, but that's not the case. Mm -hmm. The rich countries will pay those higher prices and make sure that their populations have everything they need. And of course, those populations will waste huge amounts of that um, as well. And the countries that aren't able to afford it, um, the poor countries, the emerging markets, will have massive shortages of food. So it is no wonder you're not hearing leaders of African countries speaking up against Russia during this, during this time. So where things also got really, really interesting, I think, in this topic and I and I in this podcast, and I thought was a bit controversial, but also quite bang on, is that um, the emergence of populist environmental movements over the past few years, um, you know, and not to mention any names, but there's been you know massive visibility and heroic status placed on teenage girls with a a, a big voice, and you know more power to her. 
um, and more power to those people for actually having an impact and creating more visibility on a topic that's really, really important. But those voices have all but shut down, you know, rational scientific thought about nuclear power and other types of energy that I think have been proven empirically to be quite incredibly safe and there are good mechanisms in place but these populist movements have kind of shut those things down as a result we have become even more reliant on natural gas than we otherwise would be um, europe is certainly at the center of this and as a result we are more reliant on russia their natural gas their wheat and their ability to turn on and off those switches can not only put pressure back on the Western nations, but it could potentially, you know, plummet a billion people on Earth into, into hunger and starvation. And I think the experts think that we will be seeing that by the end of this year. Yeah. No, I think at least also, also from a European perspective, I think your analysis is, is right. But I also see that now extremely quickly opinions are changing in Europe. For instance, in Belgium, for instance, a, a law was signed to stop nuclear energy. And there was the Green Party, who is actually in charge at the moment, just like in Germany, said until I think four weeks ago, we will never reconsider this, never. Or we will, we will leave the government if it's reconsidered. Today, it has been reconsidered. <laughs> Today, the decision has taken to keep some of the nuclear uh, plants open and where the Green Party also honestly said, look, we are living in a different world. Mm -hmm. We have to take in good consideration what has happened and what we didn't think could happen one month ago. So I'm also surprised how quickly now things are changing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think a, a kind of rationality is kicking in given the circumstances that we are facing, that people realize, okay, we need to consider all options. We need to keep all options open because we are now in a very extreme situation where we need to do that. Right. Yeah. And, and it's, I think you, you make a really good point about how people are kind of reassessing initial kind of hypotheses or, or positions on some of these topics. Another one that's really relevant to this is the genetically modified food topic, the GMO, mm. right? And there has been massive outcries against genetically modified organisms. Um, most of those are rooted in some fear mongering. Some of them are, are reasonable. I think there's some purists that have some decent rationales, but the, the fear behind it is probably less warranted from a scientific standpoint. Um, what's interesting is if we had been more supportive of the GMOs that these big companies like Monsanto and whatnot have been researching for, for decades, we wouldn't have the same reliance on the fertilizers in the first place. But because we've, you know, many countries have essentially outlawed that, we've had now this greater reliance on, on hydrocarbon-based um, fertilizers. Interestingly, countries in Europe, Germany included, are now changing their position on GMO. And, and kind of redefining it in a different scope. I wonder if that is because of the macroeconomic conditions or because, you know, science is taking more of a central role to, to fear, to populist fear. Yeah, I, I, I think about the environmentalist movement, I, I always had also that, that feeling like on the one hand, of course, they refer to science and to the IPC reports 
to indicate how crucial climate change is becoming, how problematic it is. So then they fully embrace the science, and I think rightfully. But then if you talk about other topics, suddenly they seem to have a lot of distrust in the science. So when we talk about genetically modified things, they always say about Monsanto is sponsoring the scientists and mm. producing reports that uh, support them. So it's sometimes interesting to see on how different topics, they on the one hand fully embrace science and on the other one have a kind of fundamental distrust in science. And I, I agree with you, it will be interesting to see how in the current uncertainty uh, that this might pivot in one way or the other. Well, you know, dogma is built on narratives, yeah. and if new narratives don't fit our dogmatic beliefs, then we tend to, to exclude them, right? And I, I think this is a, a characteristic of society right now and, and our echo chambers. If we hear information that doesn't fit the narrative that we want to believe in, we'll discard it and find a, 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 a different narrative that fits ours. So, um, but then these, these circumstances happen, you know, these externalities impact us that kind of force leadership and decision makers to kind of uh, look at things differently. And it'll be interesting to see how some of these populist movements, how they, they respond to some of these issues when it becomes a matter of environment versus versus mass famine. And you know, I, I did my first degree in environmental policy. I was like a deep ecology, hardcore, you know, green until I went to Africa and lived there for a while in the height of the AIDS crisis. And I'm like, saw all the, the garbage and the litter and the things like that and immediately realized, hey, if you're worried about keeping your kids alive, all of a sudden, things that may otherwise be important to you aren't. And I think this was actually the, the last piece that I'll say is the thesis, one of the theses that was part of this conversation is that this conversation about like climate change and sustainability and like at least on the on the fringes and on the extremes is a very much a northern elite discourse and it's not so grounded in real world examples so you know you can be a, a, a middle class teenager from Scandinavia or or Germany or the US and you know have these very very um, strong values because you're not seeing the other side you know in the other parts of the world and these things you know issues like this are will bring them to the surface yeah and I think I think it's one of the crucial challenges that we face as a society. How can you solve the environmental issue and at the same time inequality? That's right. I think it, it creates a layer of complexity that I think we still have difficulties to grasp at the moment. And we've been talking about NIMBY for 40 years, not in my backyard. I mean, pretty much since Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, so 40, 50 years ago, you know, still haven't solved it. But. Anyways, there's my, that made me think. Yeah, <laughs> it's a big thinking. <laughs> All right, Dries, or I guess that made me learn. Tell me about something that made you think. Um, and I will bring it back a bit more narrow uh, uh, <laughs> to a very specific topic, maybe in the broader setting of, of today, not, not very crucial, but I found this quite an entertaining piece of research and, and it made me think and I will come back to that at the end. So again, an academic paper, actually an, uh, a very recent paper, so it's even not in print yet, it has been accepted 
by the Strategic Entrepreneurship Journal, so it's what we call in print at the moment. And the title of the paper is The CEO Beauty Premium, Founder CEO Attractiveness and Firm Valuation in Initial Coin Offerings. Mm. And it's authored by uh, Massimo Colombo, Christian Fish, Paul Momtas, Silvio Vismara, uh, and these are the four authors that uh, produced this very recent paper. And so this paper uh, looks at what we know as the CEO beauty premium phenomenon. So actually, in different fields, there is quite some research that attractive people, so mainly uh, evaluated in terms of facial attractiveness, that they are more likely to become a CEO. And if you have an attractive CEO as CEO, companies are also likely to secure more funding. Mm -hmm. So that has been shown in different areas. Now maybe first again a question uh, to you. Why do you actually think that this premium exists? Hmm. Why would there be a CEO attractiveness or CEO beauty premium? So I I already know a little bit about this from neuroscience. Um, And it's incredibly deep-rooted as well, like in evolutionary biology. Mm-hmm. So, um, and a lot of research has been done in this area on attractiveness, right? And how the ratio of the width to the length of the human face, yeah. as well as the symmetry of the face defines this attractiveness. And there have been studies done on, uh, n- multiple studies done on like ovulating women and showing them photos of men and like rating their ability to to have power or support or nurture or or secure and protect and whatnot and the greater the symmetry the greater the the greater the connection interestingly there were some things of like postmenopausal women didn't have the same re- responses so there's a key relationship between attractiveness and mate seeking in in, and the reverse was done with men as well. I shouldn't shouldn't make it uh, gender one direction. Um, and then there have been a lot of research on leadership, politicians, um, both in terms of attractiveness, but the other one I've seen stuff about is is height as well and the correlation of height. Unfortunately for me, even though I'm 194 centimeters tall, there's a negative correlation with lack of hair. So baldness reduces that substantially. <laughs> there are different effects playing at the yeah, same time. Yeah, so I'll probably break it even on that one. But. <laughs> okay, yeah. Now, and so the authors, they also go through the literature and they, they, they argue that there could be two explanations for this effect. So they argue on the one hand, so why are CEOs of star- attractive CEOs of startups more able to raise money than less attractive CEOs? They say, if you look at literature, there are two explanations. One is that actually um, there, there's stereotyping. Mm-hmm. So when people see somebody attractive, they will stereotype that person as somebody that is also trustworthy, competent, uh, that is a leader. And because of that, they are more confident in that person and are willing to give the person more money. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So that would be the stereotyping mechanism. At the same time, economists have uh, uh, given another kind of explanation. It's like, okay, when you need to invest in a startup, there's a lot of inf- what we call information asymmetry. Yeah? Mm-hmm. That's a f- standard economic concept. Mm-hmm. 
I need to invest in you, but I have less information about your startup than you have. So there is information asymmetry. And then I am just trying to find cues about the real value that you have. And if there is not a lot of information, attractiveness of your face might actually act as a signal that will influence my decision making. So if I'm in a very uncertain environment, I don't have a lot of information about your startup, then I will still try for my decision making to rely on certain cues and your attractiveness might be one of them. That seems like a very irrational actor though, right? In a, if they're trying to maximize utility in their investment, you know, doesn't that seem like an irrational? It's it's a it's a yeah it's a bias, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but yeah, you you have to make a decision in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And so then uh, that's also what what in, uh, in fundamental psychological research has been shown. If if we have limited information, mm-hmm. we we try to grasp the information that we have. And if the information is you have an ugly face, you have a pretty face, even that might actually then influence my decision making. Mm-hmm. So that's what they're arguing. So then they wanted to find out, okay, which of these two explanations, first of all, they wanted to know, do we see the CEO beauty premium in our uh, study? And they actually have a very interesting context, namely they look at uh, startups that raised money by means of an initial coin offering. Mm -hmm. So that I think nowadays it's again a bit less popular, but I think like four or five years ago, there was really this hype of startups raising money, not in a traditional way, by actually by launching their own uh, cryptographically created tokens, Mm -hmm. and that was how they raised money. And so these authors got access to a huge database of startups that have raised money by means of initial coin offerings. For all the CEOs, they collected the pictures of the, the CEOs, and then they asked people that invested in these startups to evaluate the attractiveness of the, the CEO to see is there a linkage between the attractiveness and the amount of money that they were able to raise. And indeed, in line with prior research, they again found that if the CEO is evaluated as an attractive person, the amount of money that the company was able to raise was higher than if the person was evaluated as a relatively less attractive person. And the interesting thing was they also sent out surveys to these investors to ask about trustworthiness and competence of these CEOs. But there they didn't find a correlation. So they, they could not find evidence that there was this stereotyping going on. However, they found out that, especially when there was a lot of uncertainty, that then this beauty premium really played. Whereas if there was less uncertainty, then the beauty premium didn't play. Mm. So indeed, that seemed to indicate that if you're in a lot of uncertainty, then attractiveness of a person might become a kind of signal that investors use to make a decision, yes or no. If uncertainty gets less, so if if information asymmetry actually decreases, then it becomes much less important. So the the first question I have is the same one that I had from the previous study, right? Is like... Um, if you're surveying investors that invested in an ICO, they already know the outcomes yeah. of their investment. Is there that reflexivity bias again, where if their investment was a success, they're naturally going to see that person as more attractive? Um, that's that's my first question. I guess. Yeah, and, and let me immediately answer. The authors acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. And also here, they did a kind of additional research 
where they didn't ask in which you invested, but again, uh, there it was a survey where they just asked you to evaluate CEOs in which you did not invest, but then it was more like, would you invest in them? Mm -hmm. So to ad address that reflexivity bias, they did a kind of additional research and what they call post hoc analyses mm -hmm. to rule out that alternative explanation because it's, it's a, of course you could say, if I invest in you, I might find you then more attractive simply because of the fact that I invested in you. Right, and you won. Yeah. yeah. To, yeah. But, uh, but so they were able to rule that out. Okay. Um, so I listened to a podcast just a, a few days ago that, you know, talked about something similar. And it, it was, I don't know if you've ever listened to The Armchair Expert with Dax Shepard. He's yep. a, a Hollywood comedian, but really great podcast. And they had Daniel Pink on there. And, um, and they were talking about, it was kind of a, a, an offshoot of the conversation, but they were talking about like famous people they had met, and they sp were specifically talking about Tom Brady, okay. the American football player. Um, you know, married to a supermodel, uh, classically handsome fella, and uh, and these two men, these two straight men, were talking about how they were just like blown away by how handsome this guy was when he met them. He's like, he's just so unbelievably handsome, and. And what they realized in their conversation were, was that a lot of these like top of their game athletes are incredibly handsome. You know, the uh, Michael Jordan or Cristiano Ronaldo's or um, really the, the top of the top. There are some like incredibly beautiful human beings, right? Uh, objectively, I guess, uh, attractive. And the question is, is like, why it, it there's a chicken or the egg right like um are they attractive because they're so successful and we look at them through different lenses or were they afforded other opportunities and advantages in their journey to the top because of their because of their natural attractiveness mm -hmm. right and uh so i think it's it's just interesting to kind of think of think of this particular topic is, you know, okay, so maybe there is a clear correlation that people are investing in people because they're attractive, but is where, what does it look like in, in terms of outcomes, yeah. right? Are these actually better founders because their attractiveness have, has afforded them advantages that others wouldn't have? Or, are, or is there this bias that people are seeing them more attractively because they're good founders? Yeah. And, and so in the research, the, the authors talk about that. And so what they argue is as follows. So they say, indeed, attractive people get opportunities that non-attractive people don't get. So attractive people will have more opportunities, for instance, in terms of networking, which, of course, in a setting of venture is very important. You can meet different kinds of people. It will be easier to establish connections. So that's an advantage that attractive people have. And so investors know that. Mm -hmm. So when investors face a lot of uncertainty, a lot of information asymmetry, and they see an attractive CEO, mm -hmm. then they might think, okay, he is attractive. So it's likely that he has received a lot of opportunities that less attractive CEOs will not have. So let's bet on this one. Mm -hmm. Because he, is likely, he or she has likely to be able to have built up these networks and had all these advantages that maybe this ugly guy or this ugly woman didn't get. Yeah? So that's how they reasoned this thing about why in a setting of information asymmetry, going for the attractive person 
uh, is a likely option for investors. Hmm. So that's how they also reason it. So in that way, it, it comes back to what you were saying, actually. So it makes me wonder, do we need to start looking at the issue of diversity and entrepreneurship through a, another lens as well? That it's, you know, <laughs> that, that we're, we're underrepresented, other groups are underrepresented as well if they're not as attractive? So it made me think in a different way, a, a bit similar, but different. It was like, to me, it made me think, okay, if we know this relationship, why do most entrepreneurs, at least in my perception, to invest so little in attractiveness. If I look at the average entrepreneur in Germany that is raising money, they are not, I have the feeling if I look at the pictures that you see on LinkedIn and stuff like that, I don't get the feeling that they are investing a lot of time and effort in styling themselves. Mm. Whereas actually the research seems to show if you would do that and you would be seen as more attractive, it might actually help you to raise money. And I'm sympathetic to that eh, because I'm also not <laughs> investing as myself a lot in styling. So I'm, I feel very sympathetic for these founders, but it almost seems like that they put themselves in a disadvantage. Hmm. Which, well, that's interesting when you think about like presenting yourself, you know, and, and making yourself up. I, I, I wonder if that would send a different message, right? Yeah. Like, you know, if, if a founder is naturally attractive, maybe these things, and of course that is so subjective. Yeah. And you know, if you had, I can only imagine, you know, I spent years working in sub-Saharan Africa where the perceptions of what is attractive is different, yeah. you know, being heavier set, different body shapes, different body types are, are seen as more attractive. You know, um, in the West we, have a propensity to people that are sun drenched and tan while in the far east like pale is is the norm so there's some you know is it the symmetry thing are there other you know you can't dress up symmetry right so if there if this is truly uh, neurological biological it doesn't matter like how much you what you kind of clothes you put on and you know how much makeup you put on it's not going to yeah. You, it's not going to work. So, yeah, it's, you cannot fake it, uh, you would right. say. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's a good point. Interesting. Cool. Good. Uh, that is one I would never have thought of. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me wonder sometimes, Dries, that academics have time to come up with some random shit. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm going to bring mine. I'm going to bring mine back down to earth a little bit. And... Um, you know, as you know, I had on the last episode, I had Christian Merriman, a founding partner at Cherry Ventures, had a wonderful conversation with Christian. And he brought up a topic that, you know, I was aware of, but I hadn't really thought so much into. Um, and it's the topic of blitzscaling. So um, he recommended a book and... I was so intrigued by our conversation that I immediately downloaded the audiobook and and plowed through it. And that book is uh, it's called Blitzscaling: The Lightning Fast Path to Building Massively Valuable Companies. And it was written by Reid Hoffman and Chris Yeh um, about three or four years ago. Um, for those of you that didn't last listen to the to the last episode, that maybe I should start by explaining what the concept of of blitzscaling is. Um, in short, this is very much an American or historically American model of venture investment, 
And it's a, an investment approach that is designed to drive hyper growth in startups. Um, and how do they do that? The, the thesis is pretty simple. Uh, the venture that raises the most money climbs to the top the fastest and can essentially insulate themselves from competitors. So you raise as much money as you can um, and you move as quickly as you can. I think most, most people would agree that the primary KPI for a startup is to move fast as hell. The faster you move, the, the better off you're going to be. But when you're blitzscaling, you are moving fast with tens or maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars or euros at your disposal. So it, it is expected that you make big mistakes. You hire quickly, you hire poorly, you try to secure the most amount of talent as possible, you, you build infrastructure shoddily and sloppily, and you focus solely on growth metrics. You don't even think about P&L. It's not about being profitable, it's how many customers, how much engagement, how many users you can get. Um, this is particularly relevant in highly competitive uh, industries. And one of the examples Reid Hoffman uses as kind of the, cent the center of his thesis, um, which really surprised me about the book and why I decided to bring it up. But, you know, I thought this was really a Silicon Valley model. And Christian had kind of we talked about it and how it's now becoming the norm in Germany. And it's only because of some recent industries that have been hyper competitive. Um, particularly mobility industries like the, the, the scooters and there's four or five players that are all competing for market share and trying to get to the top and more recently quick commerce mm -hmm. right where you've got these companies that have become unicorns in a matter of months and they're all raising tens or hundreds of millions um, to try to capture that market share however the blitzscaling model has been renowned in Germany for a long, long time, you know, close to 20 years now. And the pioneers of blitzscaling in Germany is, you know, another VHU alum, but it's, it's Rocket Internet. So most people think of Rocket as this copycat, you know, incubator venture builder, where they would see business models in the U.S., they would build them quickly for the German market and eventually try to sell them to the US. What people don't realize is that was early blitzscaling. So they would build quickly, they would pump it with tons of cash, they would pull in you know, founders from management consultancy or internally to help them scale it, and then they would rocket fuel it and try to sell it. Um, interestingly enough, one of the rocket ventures was a big part of this book, which was Wimdu. Yeah. And Wimdu was the Airbnb clone, right? So um, Airbnb was trucking along, and then they saw this German competitor pop up, and it started growing really, really, really fast. So Airbnb reached out to them, I guess. So this is kind of the way the, the story goes. And, um, and the Rocket guys basically said, yeah, you can buy us for 25% of your stock. And I guess the Airbnb investors' um, response to that was, we're going to give you a shitload of capital so you don't have to buy them and you can run them into the ground. Yeah. And inter interestingly enough, they did. Mm -hmm. And I think it was one of maybe one of the early and interesting battles of the, the true financial horsepower of Silicon Valley saying, 
this copycat model, you're, you're, we're not going to buy you. Even though we could, we're going we're gonna to crush you by blitzscaling in a way that you've never seen before. You know? so, um, but when you think about it, and this is really what, what made me think, right, is this model is meant to raise the most amount of c- capital as possible, move quickly, make a ton of mistakes, and worry about fixing them later. So it's sloppy, it's messy, it's ugly, it's unstrategic. It's literally who has the most money and the most connections are, are going to win. Meanwhile, you could have the most supremely talented founders, the better product, the better customer experience, the better value proposition. But because you can't acquire as many customers just by sheer volume, you end up losing. Mm. So if our Western economy and our entrepreneurial culture is truly, you know, rooted in the concept of meritocracy, where the most talented, you know, should rise to the top. Does this model completely undermine it? And does does it furthermore prevent opportunities for newcomers, less connected, less advantaged entrepreneurs to, to really climb up to the top of the, the entrepreneurial food chain. Yeah, and I, I think, I, I remember, I think it's a, a few years ago that The Economist, which is not a left-wing <laughs> magazine, <Exactly>. not, <laughs> they were extremely critical about this blitzscaling dynamics. So they were saying, look, blitzscaling is really a problem because it creates this kind of artificial monopolies that that, uh, we should not defend and legislation should move against them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if the economist calls out for uh, legislators to come in, it's it's already a sign that they really believed something is wrong. Um, So I I think there is quite some criticism nowadays on that model. And I I also question the, the... the viability of the model in a lot of industries. So, of course, it has it has shown its success. I think Airbnb is a very good example of where it worked out. But, for instance, if you look at quick commerce, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Because, in my opinion, the dynamics of quick commerce are a bit different. Because, you, as a quick commerce, you have to fight the competitive battle in every city all over again. Right, right. And it's a bit the same like Uber. I think Uber was also seen as a blitzscaling, but it did not really happen because they had to fight the fight again in every city. And I think with quick commerce, we will see the same. And then I think this following this blitzscaling model is very tricky, I think. Well, it's interesting that you talk about the geographic expansion part because I think you're, I think you're right about that. Um, I haven't thought about that, but Uber has been used as a as a kind of prime example of it going awry, mm-hmm. right? Because the idea is grow fast, get as many users as possible, um, capture the market share, and you can figure out profitability later. The problem is, is what if you never figure out profitability? And I think that's what happened with Uber. And, you know, most of the pundits think the only thing that's ever going to save Uber is potentially Uber Eats, no. right? That, um, and finding ways to leverage their massive, their massive rider ne- driver network, which is the other side of the, of the marketplace. I think the same goes for quick commerce, right? Like, these aren't particularly profitable. And what you're seeing now is contraction. And a lot of companies, I think there was three companies in New York alone that shut down in the past few months. And they weren't outcompeted, 
they just literally ran out of money because they were operating at such a loss for so long until the investors lost confidence, right? So um, in some ways, this is very much uh, that the, the classic FOMO supply and demand kind of thing, artificial value being created mm. where these thing, the models itself aren't profitable. So can huge amounts of capital overcome you know, just bad business models if you buy them enough time to figure it out, right? Because that's exactly, essentially, that's what ha what's happening here. No, and I think a second thing that I would say is I sometimes think that VCs underestimate a bit how uh, public opinion is now looking at monopolies and winner takes all. Mm -hmm. I think 10 years ago, everybody, or at least public opinion was like, winner takes all is, is acceptable. Mm -hmm. And monopolies, okay, we accept that. I think today, opinion has drastically changed about that. Mm -hmm. And and we see that also with legislators. And we see increasingly, especially in Europe, legislation introduced that simply makes it much more difficult to create a winner-takes-all position. Mm -hmm. And we have now this DMA legislation that is more and more forcing companies like Google and Apple uh, to allow companies to circumvent their, uh, their stores. That's about legislators saying we are no longer accepting that you're abusing your market power. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's a consequence of public opinion changing. And I think in that kind of setting, creating a winner-takes-all position via blitzscaling approach will be much more challenging than 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I have a feeling that some investors might underestimate that. Yeah, well, I mean, that's where I think things get interesting, too, is, you know, most of the investors that are driving the blitz scaling aren't going to be on the cap table when the when they actually become monopolies, right? So, you know, seed series A, series B, maybe even series C, by the time there is an IPO or there's some type of trade sale, they're, they've already cashed out, you know? So they're, they're looking that eight to 10 year time horizon to get off the cap table. By, by the time our slow moving regulators actually consider something a monopoly, discuss it internally, do their due diligence, those, got, those other folks have already made out like a bandit. No, that's, that's a very relevant point, yeah, no. And I mean, I think this, it, it also begs the question of like, what is, you know, of course, investors are looking for a return for their LPs on their funds, but it seems like there's also a little bit of like, how many unicorn badges can we put on our lapel, mm. right? And it's, I'm starting to wonder if it's less about, it's less about value creation as it is about valuation, yeah. you know? And, uh, and I think we're seeing more and more unicorns popping up way too quickly that don't have, you know, sustainable business models to back it up. And we're just calling them that and betting that they're going to figure it out eventually. Yeah. And at the same time, again, The Economist, I think, wrote a special report about it. I think it was three or four years ago. And in these three, four years, it only has become more and more. So <laughs> it's quite interesting to see that the dynamic is still growing so exponentially, despite a lot of people raising questions about it. So that's... Well, we're also in, an, in a time where there is a shitload of capital, right? And, you know, I don't know if you saw, it was one of the topics I thought about bringing up today, and, and I decided on something else. But, you know, like Sequoia just launched an accelerator in London. 
And that accelerator gives them a million bucks. Mm. This is pre-everything, right? Yeah. So, um, of course, now every Sand Hill Road VC has scouts or offices in Europe. The money is flowing everywhere. There's a ton of it. And, um, you know, until there is some type of contractive event that happens that, that slows things down, um, I think, you know, deal flow is going to go to the highest bidder. Right. Who's and it's less about valuation because for the founders too, the the feather in the cap is not what your value, at least in the early stage, it's not your valuation. It's how how big are your rounds. Right. So if an American VC firm comes in and says, we'll give you a 50 million a round instead of a 30 million a round, like they're they're taking the biggest the biggest amount they can. And then they're going to spend it as aggressively as possible. So. We'll see how those all turn out. It's going to be. Do you have Do you have a prediction on the uh, the quick commerce market in Germany that is crazy right now? Yeah, I think it will consolidate mm -hmm. um, because I think there is no other option there. Yeah. Uh, I will not make predictions on the winner because that would be like a crystal know, ball. There's a few, there's a few alumni in there. <laughs> <Yeah>. so. <laughs> and even in the ones that are not founded by alumni, quite some BAU people are active. Right. So. Uh, I would say the BAU is quite active in this uh, in this setting, and I think it's a very intriguing setting, a very dynamic one. Uh, but yeah, consolidation is something I think everybody is expecting at the moment. Yeah, and it, and maybe we'll touch on this in a in a second too. But it's particularly interesting. Maybe they wouldn't call it blitzscaling, but when you look at the the crypto and Web three worlds and the ICOs, and you know, so I'm I'm a mentor now for. Uh, for the new Techstars Web3 accelerator, okay. the, the Launchpool accelerator in Dublin, and seeing the teams that are coming out of there. Not only are these teams getting the normal Techstars 120,000 investment, they're getting an additional 150,000 in tokens from Launchpool, which is the, the corporate sponsor that's a, a crypto company. So, and these companies are coming in pre-everything with millions and millions teed up because they're, A, they're tapping into, you know, essentially disposable income, newly minted millionaires, people that are doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on this new industry. And the amount of money that those ventures are raising are exorbitant. Mm. So I think you're going to start seeing these same types of dynamics just shifting into... Um, Maybe we won't call it blitzscaling when it's kind of crowdsourced in, in that way through these coin offerings, but I think you're going to see the same kind of growth patterns unfolding. So, All right. Let's see. All right. Let's, uh, let's wrap it up with uh, something that made you laugh, Dries. Yes. And um, so at, at VAU, we, um, we are now in the process of uh, kind of... Uh, admitting the students for next year. So actually, as professors, we talk with a lot of students to get a bit of feeling about who we want to uh, admit into our programs. And so last week, I talked with a, uh, I talked with a student for the Master in Entrepreneurship program, and it made me laugh quite uh, quite a lot, but in a good way. Not he, he was a very intriguing person, and so I talked with him. and And if you looked at the CV. There were the traditional things like he spent an internship at a VC company in Berlin. Uh, he did all bit the things that tick the boxes, you know. But suddenly I saw also on his CV a line saying, oh, in uh, 2021, I started an e-commerce company and I already had 150,000 euros of sales. 
selling gadgets. And that, of course, triggered my curiosity. So in the talk that I had with them, I said, like, how did you make 150,000 euro sales? And I said, oh, I started an Instagram channel. Hmm. I said, how, <laughs> why would, uh, how do you do that? And I said, yeah, it's actually quite straightforward. I started an Instagram channel called Hedge Fund Henning. And the only thing I do, or the thing that I do is every day I post like one, two memes about the financial world. So like these kind of funny memes with graphs and some text about the financial world. And I now have 190,000 followers. So in one year, he has been able to build up a following of 190,000 people uh, buying gadgets for 150,000 euros, which blew my mind, you know? It's like, it's so different from what we tend to see as entrepreneurship. Uh, but in the end, it's very entrepreneurial, I think. It's really about bootstrapping, starting from zero, building your Instagram channel, and just experimenting with memes to get followers to attract money. So I think it's extremely entrepreneurial. And still, I think it's not enough on our radar as a school uh, who attends to position themselves as an entrepreneurial school. But I see this as a kind of new type of entrepreneurship. And we are still... Uh, having difficulties to grasp it mm. and uh, I found it really intriguing and also it was quite funny all to see all the memes and and it really made me think about how can we as BAU also attract that kind of people to our school uh, and and try to leverage these new dynamics that we see uh, and that maybe for <laughs> relatively old professors are not always that easy to understand I would say right and I mean you're First of all, I want to say these content creators, like they sure as heck are entrepreneurs. Yeah. And it gets really interesting after they build the community on the different ways to monetize it. Yeah. Like I, I follow a couple like fitness influencers, for example, and there's a particular Canadian guy who I follow, super interesting, just started putting out YouTube videos. And then he made a cookbook. And it's like his kooky, healthy recipes, essentially. And he made it into a PDF document. And he sells it for $100, right? $100. And the guy sold like 70,000 copies. Do the math. <laughs> like it's significant, right? Yeah. And not on top of the the YouTube ad revenue and things, which are actually quite small. Mm -hmm. So it's when they monetize in other ways that get really interesting. the The point being is that the although the medium is relatively new, the business model is actually quite traditional. There are many, many, and I was I was having a conversation with the leadership of a, a Silicon Valley-based crowd equity crowdfunding company that's moving into, into Europe. And we were talking about what types of businesses are great for this, right? For equity crowdfunding, especially in an era where there's a lot of venture capital available. And the answer was pretty clear. It's that, you know, businesses that are like rooted in building community first, right? If you build audience and you build community and then you try to monetize around it, um, that's been going on for a long time in a lot of different industries. I mean, of course, it's been going on in media and art and things for a long time, but all of our social networks no. began that way. You no. know, there are many, many times like marketplaces, you think of like, 
I mean, obviously the Facebooks and Twitters, but Craigslist and, you know, I mean, so many different sites started like, we'll get a whole bunch of people together and then we'll figure out how to make money mm. later, you yeah. know? And it's about like having the right messaging, connecting people and, uh, or, or entertaining them. Yeah, and you, you see even now with the NFTs, the same, the same story. When I talk with NFT founders, they're always talking about this community aspect. So what I, I see is that they try to, to invest a lot of energy in building a loyal community uh, around their NFTs because they believe that the community is in the end where they will make the money. Uh, and I, I think that's still an assumption <laughs> that, that will needs to be proven. But uh, th that's always what I'm very surprised of, that they are often less about the technology, but more about the community aspect of the NFTs. Um, so that's quite an interesting thing. And I think that also comes a bit into your point. Oh, Dries, you set, you set me up nicely for that one. For that was sure. bridging. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a good one. That was a good one. Um, so, you know, Web3, you know, NFTs, I mean, crypto, smart contracts, like there's so many different components that I, I've been trying to unpack. I find it incredibly fascinating um, because I'm a huge advocate of blockchain. I think that is one of the most, I think we talked about this last time, it's one of the most transformative technologies that can have uh, just massive, massive impacts on the world. But just like the, just like the early internet, just like many early adopters of technology, I think a lot of these kind of transformative technologies like start with the crap and the opportunists, right? Like the internet was built off pornography. You know, we didn't start figuring out how to like do really cool stuff with it until like the, you know, the pornographers and the other people like made their money off it. Um, I'm not going to talk about pornography and NFTs or whatnot, although that's an interesting topic within itself. But really talking about the message that we tend to hear from the, the Web3 community. And I think that's the part that I find kind of funny and, and maybe a little bit problematic because the, you know, the message, the gospel of Web3 is decentralization and democratization. Right. Like we are, you know, Web2 shifted the power and the wealth, you know, to these big companies and, and these big individuals that took our money and own our data and own our likeness and basically took control. And here's this new technology that's that's going to take it back. Um, but of course, there's some people in the world, some pretty high profile people that disagree with that. And, um, you know, Jack Dorsey speaks out about it quite a bit. Um, and it, it, the, the entrepreneur that everyone loves to hate, Elon Musk, uh, does that quite a bit as well. Um, and that's what kind of made me chuckle. I was looking at some of his tweets on Web3. And a few months back, he tweeted, has anyone seen, seen Web3? I can't seem to find it. You know, I think alluding to like, you know, is this is this concept of Web3 a meme within itself? Mm. You know, is it actually something tangible that is creating value or living up to the mission that um, it claims it's going to do? But then not so long ago, he treated he kind of 
tweeted a, a, a meme that just absolutely made me chuckle. And it was this, this three panel meme that just kind of mocked the concept outright. And in, in the top panel, you know, the first panel was uh, displayed a picture. It, it said web one and it displayed a picture of uh, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the, the founders of, of Google. And then the second panel showed, uh, it said web two and it showed Jesse Eisenberg playing uh, playing Mark Zuckerberg in the social network. And then it showed then it said web three and it was a picture of Vitalik Buterin, the the founder the co-founder of Ethereum sitting in a in a conference in, in Denver dressed up as a dressed up as a fuzzy bear. And uh, and I you know Musk didn't really explain it, but to me it, I mean, first of all, the photo's funny. If you've ever seen Vitalik Buterin, he is a very, very thin human being. Doesn't look like he gets a lot of sun. Obviously, an incredibly brilliant mind. Just in, an incredible genius of, of, a, of a man. But sitting there looking pretty downtrodden in a, in a fuzzy bear suit on a stage. But that's what I thought was the hilarious part, is that, you know, this is a, a very soft-spoken, introverted you know, deeply technical human being. And here he was on a conference stage. I mean, like trying to play the P.T. Barnum showman a little bit. And and to me, that was such a, a great analogy for the the proselytizers of, of Web3, right? And I think what Musk was saying is like, you know, much like cryptocurrency uh, or at least some cryptocurrency, that this is just an opportunistic marketing game, right? And we're going to create artificial demand through through good marketing and creating a cultural movement behind it where people are going to want something that inherently doesn't have a lot of value um, their their artificial demand in wanting it is going to drive up the value and thus making certain players very very wealthy and in some cases very very powerful um, and as much as Buterin, as much money as he does donate, you know, he basically donated billions in Shiba Inu coins that were kind of gifted to him and whatnot. Um, but there's just incredible, incredible wealth in that space. So the question, you know, I think the underlying message here is, do these Web3 technologies, are they really decentralizing and democratizing? Or are, are they just yet another transfer and, you know, aggregation of, of wealth and power? Yeah. No, I think, I think the, the, the really the, the technologists behind this this movement, I think they really believed in this this power of decentralization. So it's about giving ownership back to the people. You need to you need to be the owner of your data. You need to be the owner of your identity, and let's create a technology that allows people to reclaim ownership. I think if you look at the, the the creation of these first blockchain technologies, I think, I really believe that they, they, they had that fundamental belief. I agree with you that today, others have come into the field and have taken up that belief in decentralization as a kind of marketing topic to quickly start raising money for their ventures and stuff like that, so that the, the, the underlying fundamental beliefs of the initial founders of this technology are becoming more like a marketing story and no longer a fundamental belief. 
And the question is what will become the most dominant power uh, at the moment. I fear it looks that it might become the marketing story and less the fundamental belief. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's gotten so blatant too, right? Like there are companies and currencies that are just literally giving people these coins and these tokens, right? Like, Mm -hmm. hey, just hang out and play this game. We're going to give you this token that has value. Or like, hey, we're going to give you this world coin. We're going to give everyone in the world these coins that are are free, Right. right? There is clearly nothing supporting those things having any value, right? The only thing that can give it value is an artificial sense of, you know, demand or a FOMO, right? And, you know, I think that that kind of psychological mechanism, societal mechanism appears in a lot of a lot of different cryptocurrencies, a lot of different assets, which is very different from a fiat currency, which is actually rooted in various, you know, transactive behaviors, um, gross domestic product outputs, um, resources, things of that sort. And now we're playing like such a purist supply and demand game, right? That it is almost for people that are trying to undermine the capitalist kind of uh, hierarchies and power dynamics yeah. are doing it by playing the maybe the purest capitalist game of all yeah. the fu- the purely laissez-faire you know uh, deregulated Adam Smith type approach to yeah. to capitalism. So it, it's almost like, th- and I wonder if that how deliberate that is in some places or how naive it is at at others, because we talk so much about message market fit, you know, and I think the messaging works with maybe a certain audiences that are either opportunistic or or naive. No, and I think also, again, the current geopolitical situation also made my perception changing a bit more because, of course, you can think, okay, it's nice that you have Bitcoin that's, Governments cannot influence, but it also means that today Russian oligarchs can use Bitcoin to escape all the sanctions. Mm-hmm. That's also a consequence of that. Right. And so the question is, as a society, do you want that? Right. Well, I, I mean, but that's how technology is in period, right? Like, I, I think you could say that, like, Facebook liberated Tunisia, yeah. but also destroyed Egypt, yeah. right? So... Um, Technology is really in the in the hands of the beholder. We'll we'll have kind of different outcomes, you know. But in the end, like we're, some technologies have some type of value, right? Like, um, and I just I can't get past the types of technologies. The only value they have is the amount of energy that's required to produce them, you know. So I think. I I do want to caveat it and say we have to, we absolutely have to make sure that we don't let bad actors, you know, tear down the, um, the incredible value and world perceptions of the beauty that sits behind them. Mm -hmm. And and blockchain is truly a a thing of, of beauty. Um, but again, you know, the, the first movers on it are going to use it in opportunistic ways to, to create capital. It's just ironic that they're doing it through the guise of democratization and decentralization. No, and I think you're right. It's such a powerful technology. But I think we simply do not have a clue yet what will be the real use cases of that technology. And I remember I listened to 
a podcast and it was a guy from Andreessen Horowitz and they are heavily into Web3 and they said, look, if you go back to, to the, into the 80s when uh, Steve Jobs uh, the, um, launched the first commercials for the Apple computer mm -hmm. and what was the first use case that they showed in the commercials? It was that we would use the computer to write down cooking recipes. Right. That, what, that was yeah. what was shown in the commercial. Uh -huh. So why would we use a computer to write down cooking recipes? Right. If you think today about how we are using computers, <laughs> it's almost... Well, we're still using it to write down recipes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if you think about what are really the use cases, mm -hmm. it, it's a, something totally different that could nobody imagine at that point. Yeah. And so they claim it will be the same with blockchain. Mm -hmm. Today, we have maybe NFTs and it's still a bit playing around. But at a certain point, use cases will emerge that will fundamentally transform it yeah. and make it a very powerful technology that will drive development in the next decades. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think we see that with with so many things, right? We see it with um, even, you know, AI, deep learning. We see it with blockchain. We're seeing it with so many emerging technologies is that, you know, we haven't figured out how to harness it effectively yet. It, it always reminds me of that that E.O. Wilson quote that we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions and godlike technology. And we are all you know, our meager human brains and the institutions that we, you know, we put in place to kind of guide us are always a step behind what we're able to produce technologically. Mm -hmm. So it's always going to take time for us to kind of catch up. Um, the question is, is what's the, what's the event horizon where we literally can't catch up anymore at all? So I feel like we're teetering in that area because our, our, uh, our paleolithic emotions aren't uh, aren't evolving fast enough, in my opinion. But, anyways, Dries, sorry, maybe we didn't we didn't end up so funny at the end on that one. You know, <laughs> Some, somehow there was a little doom and gloom in this conversation today. But um, uh, such is the nature of of the world these days, too. But um, as usual, mate, enjoyed it. Always nice to to learn, learn new things and, and discuss these interesting topics and, and get to do it in person. Yes, it yeah. was a, it's an intriguing setting in which we are sitting, but it was nice to be in person. <laughs> it, it is an intriguing, it is a hotel room, by the way. I know it, it might look like Dries is visiting my brothel, but uh, he is indeed in, in our hotel room, uh, my hotel room in Dusseldorf. But um, Dries, glad we got to do it. Really looking forward to, to doing it again. Hopefully the world doesn't give us such um, powerful and, and heavy times that um, uh, all of our topics uh, swerve into the topics of doom and gloom and, and what happens with the world. But um, yeah, great, great conversation. Can't wait to do it again. Um, yeah, for those of you that tuned in, thank you once again um, on behalf of my colleague Dries Fahms, Professor of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at VHU, and me, Garrett McGowan. Um, stay tuned for our next episodes coming up in a couple weeks. As usual, if you like this episode, uh, please feel free to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, comment on Spotify, and if you don't like that, don't do it. Um, we'll see you next time. Bis nächstes Mal.